28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering, the, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Please join me in a brief time of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray once again that you would focus our attention, Lord, upon your word. Not only the written word, but that you would focus our attention upon Christ, who is the word. We pray that you would fill this this room, this place, with your glory, with the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our guide and that he would teach us all things that you desire for us to know, <clears throat> that he would enable us to understand your word rightly. And through it all, Lord God, we pray that we would be made just a little more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so today, uh, as many of you are aware of, marks the first day of Passion Week, or what many refer to as uh, Holy Week. And uh, this is because this is the last week where we are celebrating, we are remembering the last week of Jesus' life on earth in terms of his ministry, we know that he was resurrected and spent many time, many, many days and weeks, in fact, with his disciples after the resurrection. But uh, this is the last week of his three years or three and a half years of ministry on earth where he taught and did many significant things during this last Seven days. And, uh, and what is always interesting, I, I think, anyways, and uh, one of the reasons I really enjoy Passion Week is uh, for, for being a kind of a historical nut as I am, 
Um, I, I enjoy the fact that we are always celebrating Passion Week right around the same time Jesus would have been uh, observing the Passover 2,000 years ago. Because Passion Week, Easter, follow the Passover. And the Passover meal, when it is celebrated, has been the same since the Exodus. God commands them when to do this, and it follows the Jewish calendar, which follows the lunar calendar, and there are 12 full moons a year. And so I'm not going to go into all the scientific detail of how they figure out when Passover is and when Easter is. You can get on the Internet and figure that out for yourself. It's quite fascinating. But unlike Christmas, right, we have no idea when Jesus was born. We just sort of picked that month and celebrated. When we know that it's very likely they didn't travel to Bethlehem in the dead of winter. Um, probably more of a spring or summer birth, but we have no idea. But we do have an idea. And, and in fact, this may be the very week 2,000 years ago in which Christ was preparing for his last seven days on earth and his last seven days with his disciples. And, uh, and it's an important week. Uh, historically, uh, Christianity has viewed Passion Week as being significant, very significant. So we, they, they, we take a week to reflect on it, not just Easter Sunday. We take a week to reflect on it. And we think that it's important because apparently the gospel writers thought it was important. Here's some interesting facts that a lot of Christians aren't aware of. Uh, Luke thought the last seven days of Jesus's ministry were so important, he devotes 25% of his gospel to the last seven days. 25%. Matthew devotes 28% of his gospel to the last seven days of Jesus' three-year ministry. Mark devotes 38%. And John, John thought it was so important, he devotes 45%, nearly half of the gospel of John. So if you've ever read through the gospel of John, nearly half of the gospel of John is focused on the last seven days. Of Jesus' life, beginning in the middle of chapter 12, John chapter 12, middle of John chapter 12, to the end is seven days that John is covering. Because during these last seven days, Jesus taught and did many significant things. For example, during these last seven days is when we see Jesus cursing the fig tree on his way to Jerusalem that was out of season, but then the next day, the disciples see that the fig tree had been withered. These last seven days is where Jesus gives his two great commandments in Matthew chapter 22, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. These last seven days is where we see in Matthew again, Jesus pronounces the seven woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. During these last seven days is also where we see Jesus provides many significant teachings regarding the end times in Matthew chapter 23. 24, and 25. In John, we see during these last seven days, Jesus provides important teachings on himself being the vine and all believers being the branches and what that means in John chapter 16. And then in John chapter 17, during these last seven days, is where we read about Jesus' high priestly prayer and what a wonderful and glorious prayer that is for himself. And then he prays for his disciples. And then I love the last part. He prays for all of us, 
future believers. During this last seven days is where we will see Jesus wash his disciples' feet, including Judas, which is astounding to me. During these last seven days where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and gives that to the church as an ordinance to be remembered always. And during these last seven days, of course, is where Jesus is betrayed, arrested, beaten, flogged, crucified, and buried. And so it's important, these last seven days. And so we as a church want to spend a week uh, focusing on the last seven days of Jesus' ministry. So a little plug, if you haven't RSVP'd for the Monday, Thursday service and our Good Friday evening service, I hope you will. It is a wonderful time of coming together. I, I so look forward to Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday and coming together as a body and just really uh, spending a night of focusing and reflecting upon Jesus' last supper with his disciples, and then on Good Friday, focusing on the uh, death, the sufferings and death of Christ in anticipation of Resurrection Sunday. So here's an interesting exercise for you uh, this week. Beginning tomorrow, I would encourage you to, because uh, we're going to look at uh, the first half, uh, well, we're looking at the end of chapter 9, uh, chapter 19, but beginning tomorrow, I'd encourage you to, uh, well, go home today, read the rest of chapter uh, 19, and then tomorrow, read half of chapter 20, just stop somewhere in the middle, because somewhere in the middle is the end of Monday, maybe go down to 27, and then on Tuesday, I'd encourage you to read the rest of chapter 20, and then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, one chapter a day, I'd encourage you to read uh, chapter 21, then chapter 22, then chapter 23. And then don't read anything on Saturday because nothing happens on Saturday, at least with Jesus. He is dead and in the tomb. And then on Sunday morning before church, wake up and read Luke chapter 24 and focus on the last week of Jesus' life. <clears throat> but here we are in Luke chapter 19. And as I've already said, this is now the tail end of Jesus' three-year ministry or three-and-a-half-year ministry, just depending on um, how you uh, date it. And uh, per Luke chapter 17, verse 11, just to sort of give you the, the background, the historical setting, he has uh, traveled from Galilee, and he has made his way all the way down to Jerusalem, which is about a distance of about 100 miles uh, on foot, which is a long way to walk. And, uh, and so he's coming from Galilee because Galilee is, in fact, where he does most of his ministering at. If you go through and read all four of the Gospels and you, you pay attention to where Jesus is when he's teaching and performing miracles, most of his time is spent in the northern part of Israel. He really only comes to the southern part of Israel for the important holidays, as every good Jew would. And, of course, while he's there, he will perform miracles and teach as well. But then after the holiday, he goes back to the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee, and that is where he spends most of his three-year ministry. And so then in chapter 19, we're told that he, he stops in Jericho at the house of Zacchaeus as he's making his way to uh, Jerusalem, and there he teaches a few parables uh, to Zacchaeus and his disciples and Undoubtedly a large crowd that is probably standing outside of Zacchaeus' house because there was a loud, large crowd 
that followed Jesus and Zacchaeus to his house, right? Because everybody was wondering, what in the world? Why is he going to the house of a tax collector? But he goes into Zacchaeus' house, and of course we know that Zacchaeus gets saved. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he repents and restores all that he has stolen to those whom he has swindled money from. And so that brings us to verse 28 of our text. We're told, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So he went on ahead. Well, the question that that immediately raises, at least in my mind, is ahead of whom or ahead of what uh, exactly? Apparently ahead of his disciples or at least ahead of the crowd. It could also mean that he pressed ahead. It could be taken that way, that, that his face was bent and he was determined to go toward Jerusalem But either way, you get the impression that he's in the house of Zacchaeus, and after he's done teaching, he suddenly just gets up, and he walks out and begins going to Jerusalem, and everybody just says, well, there he goes. You know, follow him. He's pressing on ahead of the disciples. He's leading at the beginning of this ginormous crowd, this giant procession, and uh, and we're told that he goes up to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, there are some people who want to uh, use phrases like this to try to point out the inaccuracy of Scripture. You know, because Jericho is north of Jerusalem. It's, uh, so wouldn't you say that he went down to Jerusalem? Why would you say he went up to Jerusalem? Is it just a historical inaccuracy? No, because that kind of language is always used, even in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That is because Jerusalem sits on a mountain called Mount Zion, which stands at about 2,500 feet. So it's not a small mountain. And, uh, and you have to climb nearly 2,500 feet because it is a short distance to uh, west of the Dead Sea. And if you're familiar with the uh, geography of Israel, you know that the Dead Sea is the only lake in the world that sits below sea level. So going toward Jerusalem uh, from the Dead Sea uh, you're, you start at below sea level, and you end up climbing all the way up to Jerusalem. So in the Bible, it doesn't matter which direction you're approaching Jerusalem from. You're always going up to Jerusalem, whether you're heading from the south or the north or the east or the west, because it is on a mountain. And so we're told then in verses 29 and following, when he drew near to Bethphage, And Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. We don't know which two. Uh, None of the Gospels identify them for us, but he sends two of his disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which uh, which no one has ever sat. And again, we don't know which town, he says. They stop, we're told, And he says, go into the village in front of you. So they stopped somewhere near Bethany and Bethphage. We know that uh, historically, we know where Bethany is situated is on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives or Mount Olivet, which is uh, across the Kidron Valley to the east of Jerusalem. It is nearly uh, as high as Mount Zion. And so from the Mount uh, of Olives or from the, uh, the, um, the Olivet Mount, You have to go down a steep decline into the Kidron Valley and then back up to 
Jerusalem, and Bethany lies on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Historically, we don't know where Bethphage is, though. We don't know if uh, Bethphage was in between Bethany and Zion, or was Bethany between Bethphage and Zion. Either way, he stops near these two towns and says, go into the village in front of you, which may have been Bethany, or it may have been Bethphage. And he gives them these instructions. Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, hey, why are you untying that colt? That's my colt. But they simply say to him, the Lord has need of it. And so it's interesting that he says to them that they're going to find this colt, a young donkey per uh, Matthew and John, and, uh, and they're to untie it. And when they do, the owners are going to say, why are you taking my colt? You got to realize how significant. That was their form of transportation, right? That was their form of work. In, 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 in the first century world, a working animal uh, was both your car and your tractor, right? So you see someone getting into your car today, and you say, why are you climbing into my car? And they say, well, the Lord has need of it. And you say, I don't care. I'm calling the police. So it's interesting that Jesus tells him simply to say the Lord has need of it, and that's all you have to say. So you have to, first of all, realize the immense trust and faith that they have in Jesus, right? What a, what a weird thing to tell us to do, but they don't ask any questions. Like Abraham, when God says, I want you to sacrifice your only son, Abraham simply, in his mind, doesn't even say it verbally, right? Point me in the right direction. He tells the disciples, go into that town. When you get into town, you're going to find a colt. Start to untie it. Bring it here. If someone says anything to you, simply say, the Lord has need of it. Okay. We're not going to ask any questions. They simply trust Jesus. Even when his words or his actions don't make any sense. And this passage is really all about that this morning. This message is all about that, and you'll see why in a moment. But the question is, why does this happen, or how is this happening? I mean, you know, is this some sort of Jedi mind trick, right? The Lord has need of it. Ah. You may take the colt. Some scholars argue that there's a bit of a miracle happening, that Jesus tells them to say those words, and for whatever reason, they're just going to let them take it. Oh, okay, right? So not really a Jedi mind trick. More importantly, a miracle of God, sort of like moving mountains, parting water, walking on the sea. There are others who argue that this was a part of some pre, uh, pre-planned, pre pre-arranged plan, and that this was a code phrase 
that when the time was right and the owners of this colt saw somebody taking it, when the phrase was used, the Lord has need of it, they would know, ah, I know what that means. Right? That's the code phrase. The question is, when was this prearranged? Jesus did spend a lot of time in Jerusalem. He had friends there, uh, friends even in high places such as um, Nicodemus, right, um, Zechariah. Um, so there were places, there were people who had wealth and possessions that he could have worked with in Jerusalem. All of that is really speculation. We really don't know why he does this, and none of the gospel writers actually give us any explanation. The only explanation we're ever really given, the closest thing to an explanation, is John believes in his gospel that this was to fulfill what was written by the, Zechar the, the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 9.9, and in John's sights, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So according to John, this was all designed to fulfill prophecy. But this is where things start to get very interesting. Look at verses 35 to 38. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, so he's coming down toward the Kidron Valley, heading in a western direction, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, there are at least three important items that need to be pointed out from these four verses. The first, again, is why... Does he choose a colt? Why not a horse? Something a little more impressive. Why does he choose a colt to ride into Jerusalem? Well, first of all, as I've already said, in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, right, to fulfill prophecy. Jesus is always pointing out that the entire Old Testament is about me. It's all about me. But secondly... It was a common Old Testament practice for the coronation ceremony of a ruler or a king to ride on a donkey or a mule. This was a common uh, ancient Near Eastern, ancient Middle Eastern practice that they did because donkeys and mules were not considered uh, war animals, right? You don't go into war on a donkey or a mule. You go into war on a horse, a stallion if you can, something fast and powerful. Thus, donkeys and mules were considered symbols of peace. Right? The only reason a king would ride on a donkey or a mule is when there is no war. He doesn't need a war horse, right? When he comes in peace, sometimes conquering kings would do that in the ancient world, after they've conquered a, a city or a nation, they would come riding in on a donkey or a mule. And in our Western way of thinking, we think that's kind of funny, right? Because 
old movies that we see, they always come riding in. But they would ride in on donkey because it was a way of almost kind of uh, goading your enemy, like, look, you're so defeated, I can just ride in on a donkey, right? Because you're a conquered people. And I don't, I don't, my war horse is back in the stable getting rest and food. I don't need him anymore. In fact, we see this in uh, 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 38 to 40, when uh, David appoints Solomon as the new king. 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 38 to 40, Scripture says this, So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, the, uh, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the uh, Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on the pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. And so we see here that as, day, as Solomon is appointed as king, they put him on a mule because he's going to usher in the greatest length of peace that Israel has ever known before or since, throughout the reign of Solomon. Solomon is not a king of war. David was the king of war. Now at the end of David's life, all of the enemies of Israel, of Israel have been subdued, and so Solomon is paraded through town on a mule because he's the king of peace. And he comes to usher in a time of peace. It's also interesting that the two people who are actively involved in this are Zadok, the priest, and Nathan, the prophet. And so you have Solomon, who would usher in a reign of peace, who would build God's temple coming into Jerusalem on a mule with the prophet and the priest of Israel, prophet priest, and king coming into Jerusalem. Are you tracking with me? This is all about Christ. Because what we see here and what we are celebrating today on Palm Sunday is the coming of the prophet, priest, and king all wrapped into one person who would build the true temple of God church of God, all of God's people, beginning with himself and would usher in a time of worldwide peace, spiritual peace, because the gospel will go forward to all nations. It's also interesting, I think, that Jesus' first coming we're told, is on a donkey. King of peace comes into Jerusalem. But when he returns, we are told in Revelation 19, 11, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name that is written that no one else knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From the mouth comes a sharp sword to which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with, an, with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury and of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The first time he comes is on a mule to bring peace to those who will repent and believe upon the gospel. But that day, those days are coming to an end. And pretty soon Christ will return, but when he comes back, he will come on a war horse at the head of an army of angels, and he will once and for all destroy the enemies of God's people and will restore the new heaven and the new earth. He will restore all that Adam and Eve have ruined, what we looked at last week, what we read about this morning in our corporate reading of the gospel story. So Palm Sunday also points us forward to that day, that glorious day. A second item to address from these verses in our text is why the cloaks on the colt and the road? Well, again, laying their cloaks on the, the colt and people laying their cloaks on the road and according to Matthew, Mark, and John, also palm branches were told in the other gospels that people were cutting palm branches off of the trees. They were laying them down on the floor in front of the, uh, the colt, the donkey that is making his way to uh, Jerusalem. This was an Old Testament way of honoring royalty. In fact, we see this very thing happening in 2 Kings chapter 9. When Jehu is proclaimed as king, the people in haste, we're told, take their cloaks off and they lay them on the steps just as Jehu was about to walk up the steps to his throne and assume his official position as king. So it's a way of sort of making a, a makeshift red carpet, right? You are royalty. You ought not to walk on dirt. We're going to lay our coats down for you. Walk on our coats. A donkey can walk across the coat. But all this was sending one clear message that they believed that Jesus was the rightful king of Israel, the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne. Hence, this is a coronation ceremony. The king has arrived, and they understand that. That's what the people honestly believe that is happening. This is the king, the son of David, the king of Israel, riding in on a donkey. That wouldn't have been a shock to them. They would have understand the imagery as well. That's what Solomon did. The king has come. The third item to address is how much did they understand about who Jesus was? As you look at verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So as I've already said, at this point, the crowd seems to be openly recognizing 
and proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, the deliverer of Israel. Why? Verse 37. And he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for, here's the reason, all the mighty works they had seen. All the mighty works they had seen. You see, they are still thinking in their mind that this man of Nazareth, this son of a carpenter, we've seen the works that he's done. They've not even seen some of the most amazing works that they did. Only the disciples saw Jesus walk on water, calm the storm. But they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They saw him multiply bread and fish. They're thinking, surely this is the man with just a wave of his hand is going to wipe the Roman Empire off the face of the map and will restore Israel to her former glory. We've seen what you can do. Very likely, very likely it's for this reason that the Pharisees Begin telling Jesus in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The word disciples here is being used in a general sense, meaning followers. It's not just the 12 he's saying this to. You know, rebuke all of these, all these people who are following you. Tell them to be quiet. Why? Because they're concerned that if the Roman soldiers catch wind of this, they may suspect an uprising, a revolt, a rebellion. We do not want the wrath of the Roman Empire to come upon us. Of course, we know that that was only part of it, right? The other part is that the Pharisees were very jealous of Jesus. They didn't like the fact that all these crowds are following him. He's not even trained. He's just the son of a carpenter. And then Jesus answered. There's a little bit of sarcasm in his answer. I tell you, if I told them to be quiet... The rocks themselves would start to shout, so what's the use? Let them continue to shout. So they believe, in their mind, they believe that Jesus is the king who has come. They've seen all the mighty works that he has done. They believe this is the one we know the imagery coming in on a donkey. This is what kings do. And he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. What is astounding is that five days later, most of the people in this crowd will be shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. We don't want anything to do with that man. Why? Because in their mind, Jesus may be the Messiah that God has sent, but he's not the Messiah we want. He's not the Messiah we wanted. He did not do what we wanted him to do for us. So we don't want anything to do with him, even if God sent him. Crucify him. 
He is useless to us. It's always a shock when we think about that. But you know, that continues to be the problem today in many evangelical churches. Particularly when we talk about the prosperity gospel that is becoming so prevalent in evangelicalism, that is so poisonous and dangerous to the church. Put your trust in God, and he will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. He will give you everything you've ever wanted. He is the genie in the lamp. And if you just rub him the right way, you'll get all of your world's, all of your life's greatest dreams. So people do. They do that. And they send in their money. They send in their fat checks, and they go to these ginormous 50,000-seat churches where they're watching a celebrity pastor on a jumbo screen because they can't really see him. He's just a dot down there on the stage. But then when life doesn't go their way, when they are hit with trials and tribulations and suffering, when things don't go well, suddenly their tune changes. Crucify him. I don't want anything to do with this Jesus. The question for us, is that what kind of Jesus, is that what kind of king Jesus is for us? Is he our fair weather king? You know, I'll follow Jesus when things are going well, right? I'll follow him when life is going well. Well, but as soon as I am hit with trials or tribulations or suffering or misery, I'm done. I'm done with this king. I'm not going to church. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to Bible study. I'm not going to pray. Forget it. Crucify him. What good is he to me? If my life is still going to be filled with suffering, why follow that king? Or is he the kind of king that we obey only when it's convenient? Only when it's convenient. Sure, I'll go to church every Sunday, as long as there isn't a conflict. Because if there is something else that comes up on a Sunday, well, that's what I'm going to do. I will follow Jesus, and he's my king, unless it's inconvenient. I'll follow him when, he's, when it's convenient to follow him. Sure, I'll read my Bible. I'll spend time in prayer when there's nothing good on TV to watch. When there isn't something better to read when there isn't something else I would rather be doing, when I have spare time and nothing else to do, because I'm not going to make time. I live a busy life pursuing the almighty dollar. Jesus is my king when it's convenient. But when it's not convenient, crucify him. Sure, I'll stay married to my spouse and be obedient to Christ my king 
as long as my spouse continues to meet my needs, satisfy me, make me happy, live for me, make me the center of their world. But as soon as that changes, I'm done. Right? Jesus is my king when it's convenient. But when it's not convenient, crucify him. Because what good is he? What good is he to me? Jesus was a fair-weather king to the Jews. They were willing to follow him. They were willing to stay with him. They were willing to shout Hosanna to the king of Israel. Hosanna in the highest. But when he doesn't perform as they want him to perform, crucify him. How often do we do the same? Maybe not with our words. Maybe not in our mind. Maybe we don't think those thoughts, but by our actions. We say that Jesus is my fair-weather king. I'll follow him when life goes well. I'll follow him when it's not inconvenient. But when life does not go well, or when it is inconvenient, then with the rest of them we'll shout, crucify him. Is Jesus your fair-weather king? Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we look at the crowd that will later yell, crucify him, and we shake our heads in amazement. Yet so often we do the same. All of us, Lord, I am guilty of it as well. That when life doesn't go the way we want it to go, when being a Christian and being obedient to your word is inconvenient, by our actions and by our deeds, we shout, crucify him, away with him. Father, I pray for all of us in this room today that Christ would never be our fair-weather king, that we will follow him through thick and thin, through good times and bad, through joy and suffering, through convenience and inconvenience, that we will bow the knee to his lordship and say, I will follow you the rest of my life, no matter where you go, because you are the king and you are deserving of our loyalty and of our faith and of our love not only because of all that you have done for us in your life, death, and resurrection, but, but because simply you are God. And you alone are deserving of our faith, of our love, of our faithfulness, and of our loyalty. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We go to the Lord's Supper. As we say every Sunday, the Lord's Supper reminds us of uh, what we will soon be 